Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. It's interesting that he was wanted to design underwear because that seems like a very common thing with the development of spacesuits. With ILC Dover and with the David Clark Company, they all did like women's undergarments originally. One of the most, if not the most famous photographs of all time is the one of astronaut Buzz Aldrin. 1969 standing on the surface of the moon with his arm cocked but if you look at that picture you're actually looking at something else you're looking at a manufactured object namely the famous white puffy a7l spacesuit that became such an iconic 20th century object and of course a favorite in kids dressing up boxes but how did the spacesuit happen well, the story of the spacesuit is a fascinating tale of politics, of adventure, of engineering, of competition, a revolution in material science, and the story of a famous bra-making company you may have heard of called Playtex. I'm Dallas Campbell, and today I am joined by the artist Ryan Nagata, who makes the most extraordinary spacesuit replicas for films and museums and exhibitions. And I kid you not, his work is absolutely stunning, and you need to follow Ryan at once on Instagram. There's a maxim that if you really want to understand how something works, you actually have to go and make it yourself. And I think no one exemplifies that better than Ryan. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you. I'm such a massive fan of yours. And I can tell you, anyone who's listening to this, you know, annoyingly, because we're doing this as a podcast, they can't actually see any of your stuff. Ryan makes the most amazing stuff. However, just go to Ryan's Instagram feed or his website and then you can see all his amazing stuff and then you will also be a fan. So for those of you who don't know Ryan, Ryan makes incredible props and a fantastic artist and a fantastic maker. And how do you describe yourself? You make spacesuits, you'd make other things as well, but particularly spacesuits, you've become well known for not just making replica spacesuits for movies, but for what's interesting about what you do is that you've really gone into the history of the spacesuit, the social history of the spacesuit, the materials in a way that no one else has done really since ever, <laughs> since, the 19, since the 1960s. I mean, they are extraordinary, the, the level you've now gone to. I own one of your suits and I've got a, I think the one I've got was a, an early prototype of yours and I know they've come a long way since. Yeah, I think you actually own the first suit that I ever... Well, no, the first suit I ever made was when I was 14 years old, after I saw Apollo 13. I still have that. Back to the first question, what I call myself, I, I usually just say I'm an artist because it doesn't... You know, what I do are not necessarily props anymore, sometimes. No. 
I'm going to talk about you and what you do in a bit, but I've obviously because this is a podcast about invention and the history of inventions and, and we're doing spacesuits today. So let's talk about that first. First, well, we think about Gagarin going up in, when was that, 61? So that was the first time a spacesuit went into space. But we'd had spacesuits before. So where can we sort of pin the first spacesuit? Where do spacesuits come from? Spacesuit one. Well, most people say that Wiley Post's pressure suit was the first spacesuit. And that's something that he needed for high altitude flight. It's not even really high altitude by what we would consider today. No. So Wiley Post, just remind us who Wiley Post is for those who don't know Wiley Post. Wiley Post was a pilot from the 30s. You know, I don't actually know a whole lot about his biography, but I do know that he was into doing a lot of stunts and breaking records. He was definitely pushed the envelope. And he wanted to fly higher than anybody had ever gone before. And they didn't have pressurized airplane cabins at that time. So he realized that he, he would need to some kind of pressurized environment. And he worked with B.F. Goodrich to create a, a suit that he could be in that would keep him alive while he flew at high altitudes. And it looks a lot like a diving suit. That's what most people think it is when they see it. <laughs> I've got, a pic- I've got a picture of it here, actually. And when you look at it, and I know you've made a replica of it, and I- I've seen it as well. It's, when we talk about B.F. Goodrich, of course, we think about rubber car tires. And it is, the inside of the suit is just a kind of, it's like a bicycle inner tube. It's like a rubberized suit, which you can inflate. Which I suppose, that, at, at its heart, that's what a spacesuit is, isn't it? It's kind of an inflatable, one-man mer- wearable spacecraft. Yeah, I mean, it's something where you can maintain the parameters that a human being needs to to live in, and you can take it into places where a person could not. It's really just a rubber suit with kind of a canvas outer layer. That's really what a spacesuit is. It's, it's that bladder with the restraint around it. All spacesuits have that in common. I think people forget when they think about spacesuit, they think it's just about breathing. But of course, pressure, you know, we live at the bottom of an ocean of air. Mm-hmm. As soon as you're out of the ocean of air, then you need, you need to take your air pressure with you. Right. But just, I'm trying to imagine kind of Wiley Post. Here's this guy, he's a pilot. He wants to break all these kind of records. He thinks, okay, well, if I fly really high, he seems to be a creative guy. Like he says, well, okay, well, I'm going to need something made of rubber. So where do I go? I'll go and talk to a rubber company. And it was Russell Coley was the guy, wasn't it, who worked for for B.F. Goodrich, who'd worked with rubber. Yeah, that uh, it's been years since I sort of dug into that. I made a replica of that suit for a, a museum. It's the Tom Stafford Museum in, in Oklahoma. And it's where Wiley Post was from. And so I made two for various Oklahoma museums. And I do recall the name Russell Colley. Yeah, I did. I also went down that rabbit hole. I'm like, how the hell did he make that? Like, how did one invent a spacesuit from scratch? The interesting thing about Russell Coley... From, and this is from my memory, I may get this wrong, but he started off life designing women's underwear. Or, or that's what he wanted to do and ended up working for the B.F. Goodrich company. And of course, B.F. Goodrich, they worked a lot with rubber, but also kind of mixed materials. And so it was this sort of interesting marriage between this guy who understood the material science and worked for a company that manufactured rubber and this guy who wants to fly high and needs something made. And so, that yeah, those early suits. But I think Coley went on to develop some other suits for Goodrich Company because it, it wasn't just Wiley Post. The actual astronauts, I think, the early astronauts had some suits also made by the same company, by B.F. Goodrich. Yeah, well, Goodrich was in the spacesuit business for a while after that. It's interesting that he was wanted to design underwear because that seems like a very common thing with the development of spacesuits. With ILC Dover and with the David Clark Company, they all did like women's undergarments originally. 
And it, the, I guess whatever the skills that are needed to turn two-dimensional f- flat, you know, fabric pieces into something that would conform to a body, that seems to fit spacesuit development well. It is interesting, isn't it? I guess you think of things like garment manufacture, things like bras, girdles. You're dealing with kind of mixed materials. You're dealing with things like rubber and supporting things and things that give, give structure. And certainly the Apollo suits that we'll sort of talk about in a moment, this company, ILC Dover, is another company that keeps coming up in the story of the invention of the spacesuit. That was part of Playtex, who of course were, or it was the military division of Playtex, who of course were famous for making bras and girdles. And actually, as well as the materials, presumably just the skills of, you know all about this, of stitching. And all the women who made those suits originally were all seamstresses from the garment district in Delaware, who were just amazing at sewing and, you know, incredibly precise way. Yeah, it definitely, you know, the development of the spacesuits definitely required, I don't know if you've ever read the book Spacesuit, but you look at Hamilton Standard, which very traditional engineering firm, and, and the way that engineers approach spacesuits, it's very much, I think the engineer's dream for a spacesuit was the hard suit, because a hard suit would be a suit that was like entirely metal or hard components. Like a suit of armor. Yeah, like a suit of armor. And I think engineers like this idea because every joint, every surface, there's some way you can calculate all of the torques and the tensions needed for each thing. And and they can wrap their heads around a hard suit very easily. But when you start getting into fabrics and rubbers and things that expand and contract and they're sewn together, it gets much more complicated. Prior to the development of spacesuits, there was really nothing like that. And the people at ILC Dover had to invent all of this methodology for recording how they did these things. In fact, early on, a lot of the guys at ILC, they just liked to experiment. And they made these things called play suits where they would just create something and not really document how they did it. And that was a big problem for NASA because you need to not only make one suit, you need to do it repeatedly and uh, test them. So when they were inventing suits, they also had to invent the way that you document how you do it, how you create patterns and all all of the methodology for creating these things. I think that going back to the seamstresses and what they brought to it, there was a knowledge that I guess traditionally you would call it the feminine side of things that men didn't really want to do back then. But it was absolutely critical to spacesuits. It wouldn't have been possible. Those hard suits that they that the engineers wanted to make just couldn't be sent to the moon. They too heavy and they took up too much space. So was that the reason, you know, when we look at the famous Buzz Aldrin standing on the moon in that famous white puffy suit, let's just establish that. That's the A7L lunar excursion suit that was made by this company, ILC Dover, that was part of Playtex, who made bras and girdles. Why did they make a soft suit? Was it just simply for space in the rocket? I mean, because there were hard suits, as you said, Litton Industries and others were making, developing hard suits, which, as you say, presumably easier to pressurize. But why soft well, it was mainly space and weight because a hard suit can't be compressed into a small space and the materials were heavier. I mean, most of those Litton suits were all metal. They look badass, though. This, I mean, I want one of those. I want one of those. They're so yeah, cool. Yeah, very cool. <laughs> oh, I wish we had pictures on this podcast. Anyway, Google Litton Industries space suit uh, and you'll see what I mean. They're, they're awesome. Yeah. If you go to the Kennedy Space Center, they have a whole exhibit, like a display where they show all of these prototype Apollo suits. 
there's something just so beautiful about them. There are this, I don't know what it is about those early spacesuits. They look so weird and strange, but there's something gorgeous about them. Yeah. Especially those hard suits, because even the kind of American flag and the logos are all hand-painted on. You can just see the artistry in it, which, I, which just yeah. appeals to me. They are like suits of armor. I mean, when you look at, I mean, those are all beautiful works of art as well. You know, another reason, though, that they needed soft suits was because they designed the command module and they established the parameters that the, the three astronauts inside there. Talking about Apollo here. Yeah. yeah, they determined that well before the suits were finished. I actually saw an early command module mock-up and they had three astronauts in the Mercury. They were Navy Mark IV pressure suits, sort of like the Mercury. And that's how they determined, you know, how close the couches would be in the command module. So when they developed the Apollo suit, they needed to stay in that size. So they needed three guys to sit next to each other that closely. And so the hard suits were just, it would just be impossible to fit three guys like that. It needed to be something that could compress in some way. Just while we're on the subject of artistry, you mentioned Mercury. So Mercury was the project, well, there's sort of Apollo, and before that there was the Gemini Gemini missions, and then there was Mercury. So Mercury, the first American astronauts who went into space. And of course, you mentioned the Mark IV pressure suit. So this was a suit that was used by the American Air Force. This new breed of explorer came along, the idea of the astronauts. These suits suddenly became silver. And I often think, was that just like, we want them to look badass? <laughs> because the Mark IV pressure suit that the aviators were wearing were kind of olive, a drab olive green. And suddenly you had these wonderful, you know, the famous picture of Al Shepard. You know, there's that famous Harper's Bazaar from 1960-something. We've got Paul McCartney and Gene Shrimpton wearing the sort of silver spacesuits. That became that wonderful, iconic image from the 1960s. There must have been a kind of a moment where they go, actually, there's a bit of PR here. We need silver spacesuits because that's Buck Rogers. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely true. So the story of that is that the Navy and the Air Force had their own high-altitude pressure suit at that time. And the, the Navy had the Navy Mark IV. And the Air Force had the AP-22S-2 full pressure suit. I've never seen another name for that suit. Like a lot of people just call the Navy one the Mercury suit. But the Air Force used that suit for the X-15 program as well. And they had a, a cover layer over it. And as the story goes, I think it was Scott Crossfield was touring the David Clark facility where they were making those suits. And he saw the silver fabric on a, a table. They were doing experiments with aluminized coatings on nylon for fire resistance or heat. I guess it would be like thermal reflection. I don't think it has, it has much of a benefit for fire. But he said, he saw that fabric and he said, oh, you definitely have to make the X-15 suits out of the silver stuff because that's what I think public perception was at the time of what a spaceman would wear. And I don't think that the aluminized coating had much of a, an effect on the suit. So it really was mostly PR. And that translated to mercury as well. There are pictures of that suit being worn with kind of lots of heat lamps around it to sort of say, oh, yes, interesting thermal properties because of this. But we all know that <laughs> exactly why. But, you know, PR is important for astronauts. You know, when you're a government and you're pumping lots of money into this newfangled space program and you're competing with the Russians or whatever, you've got to look good. I mean, it's the point of going into space unless you look good. We see that with Elon Musk now. When Elon Musk developed his spacesuits for SpaceX, it's like he got someone like you. He got an artist to design them. Yeah, well, SpaceX has kind of brought back this very early space program idea that looks are important. You know, starting with Mercury, they did want a suit that just looked really cool, so they made it silver. 
they tried to carry that into the Gemini program. So those first Gemini suits were also silver, the ones that they were testing with. But you know, that silver coating rubs off very easily, and it's just not... They started doing EVAs on Gemini, and white was a much better color for that. But they kind of phased out this idea that they needed it to look a certain way, and they just went for pure function. But SpaceX is kind of bringing back this idea that you know you should also design the suits to look cool and capture the public's imagination. And it's definitely working, I, I think. Do you think I've got a problem with the spacesuits? Just on <laughs> visuals, it just doesn't do it for me. There's just there's something about those old American spacesuits from the 1960s, silver spacesuits and the Apollo spacesuits. There's just something, and it's partly the function of it. And I guess maybe it's the iconic nature because we're so used to seeing them. We're so used to seeing that white puffy spacesuit. It sort of feeds into our history and our heritage and everything else in a way that maybe the space. I don't know. It's too neat. The SpaceX. It looks like it's from a movie. Whereas the Apollo suits look like they're, they're made for business. Yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, coming from like a, yeah, I went to film school. And so I did a lot of like art and production design kind of stuff. And the thing that I learned was that whenever you design something just intentionally to look cool, it inevitably becomes dated after a decade or two. But when you design things purely for function, they, they, they're kind of timeless. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's it. I mean, I think that the A7L suit, that suit that we're so used to seeing, Buzz Aldrin standing there on the moon in, in, with his arm cocked, you know, it's probably the defining object of one of the defining objects of the 20th century, of all the 20th century. Certainly, it's, you know, it's perhaps the most famous photograph ever taken. But actually, when you look at that photograph, you realize you're looking at a manufactured object. You're not looking at a person. You're looking at a bit of technology. And again, with the sort of Saturn V rocket, which we all know so well, that suit is kind of up there. I don't know, maybe the SpaceX suit will, maybe I'm just an old fart and, and I, know, just, I have no taste. I don't know. <laughs> it definitely did the job, I think, of capturing 
people, particularly the young people's imaginations, because I go on a lot of these costuming forums, you know, just where people share techniques for this kind of stuff. And a lot of people want to replicate that SpaceX suit. So it's definitely, even though I like vintage stuff, I can't argue with the fact that, you know, young people are definitely interested in that. But I don't know, in, in like 10 or 20 years, it, it will probably look pretty dated. So they'll have to update their, <laughs> they'll have to update their look. <laughs> have you made one yet? Have you done a space? You must have been offered to make a... A museum did ask if I would do this and they, they went to SpaceX and... Uh... Elon will give you one. Elon knows who you are, so he'll give you one. I bet, if you asked him. Oh, really? I, somebody said that before, but I don't, I'm not sure, but... Uh, um, I've got his email, I'll send it to you. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so this is another part of my business and stuff, is that I can't just, like, make Darth Vader costumes or something, because you need a license from, like, Lucasfilm or something. But the NASA stuff is not copyrighted in any way, so I can make replicas of Apollo stuff. But SpaceX owns, you know, the image of all of their stuff as well, so I haven't made replicas of, of those. So we've established a little bit of history. So we've established, you know, first spacesuits were actually designed for high altitude flyers, 1930s, probably even earlier than that. You know, as soon as basically we've invented aviation, we've been inventing spacesuits, which direct descendants of pressure suits. From spacesuit one that you made, trying to get under the skin of this suit, take us a little bit through the journey, because I want to know what's underneath that white layer we're all so familiar with. Some of the technique, like you mentioned the polycarbonate helmet. You make those. How difficult is it to make those? How did they make those? Is that technology that they use to innovate the spacesuit, is it still there? Do the patterns still exist? Just take us through your journey of making. Yeah, the first suit I made was really just cosmetic. It was all just the outside and it was just stuffed with batting and various things to get it to kind of look right. But in my quest to replicate them more accurately, I would have to dig into a lot more research and see what was actually underneath all those layers. And that did take me to a lot of the original companies. Fortunately, I've you know gotten to be well-known enough in that world that a lot of those companies were actually excited to you know bring me in and, and show me and let me measure all of their stuff. But the bubble helmet... That's probably... So this is the kind of the fishbowl helmet, that sort of... Yeah, yeah. People see the gold visor and they don't realize that actually under, that's just a, a visor assembly. And underneath that is that the sort of fishbowl helmet that people may be familiar with. So the visor assembly protects you from the sun and, and the thermal elements and micrometeors of space. But what actually holds the pressure is this polycarbonate bubble that locks on to the top of the suit. And it was actually a pretty important invention for the spacesuit. I hesitate to say the program wouldn't have been possible without it, but certainly the way they did it, it wouldn't have been possible because before the bubble helmet, they had, it was usually like a fiberglass helmet with a visor, clear visor on the front that would... Like a motorcycle helmet. Yeah, yeah, and it would swing down. And there were various methods that they would use to seal the visor onto the fiberglass helmet. But those helmets were pretty large, and because person needs to move their head to see in different directions, it would require pretty complicated bearing mechanisms on the ring. So for Apollo, the suits were taking up a lot of space, going back to what I said about the command module. So a lot of that was because they needed this mechanism so they could turn their head in a traditional helmet. So they invented this polycarbonate bubble that was relatively small and just fit all around the person's head. So a person could turn their head in the bubble without having to have that huge mechanism that made the suit really large. Those bubbles are made by a company called Airlock Industries. It's now owned by David Clark, which is a pressure suit manufacturer. And the exact way they make those 
is kind of a closely guarded secret. I do know some things about it, how they're formed in metal molds. The way I do it is different. I do them in silicone molds because manufacturing a, a metal mold would be prohibitively expensive. And I have done them out of polycarbonate, but it's a very difficult material to work with. So I usually make them out of different plastics. When these suits were being made in the mid-1960s, how difficult would it have been then? I think it was. So somebody at Airlock, I don't know the exact story, but some inventor at Airlock came up with the way to form these bubbles. And I've been told by someone that they think that like hot hydraulic oil is, is injected into the plastic bubble. So part of the problem with when you form a bubble, if you've ever seen the Apollo bubble, it tapers down. And so the bubble has to expand into a mold by quite a bit. You have a relatively small sheet of plastic, like a, maybe a one foot sheet of plastic that has to be very thick, like three eighths of an inch. So you need enough material to expand into that mold. And so by the time, like if you're blowing a bubble into a mold, by the time you get to the top of the mold, plastic is very thin. So you need to come up with a way to get as much of that like three eighths inch thick piece of material to the top so it's thick. And one way that I've been told they do it is pumping hot hydraulic oil in there so you keep the plastic temperature consistent all the way through. I'm not 100% sure that's how they do it, but... I mean, just to be clear, it's not like you get two hemispheres of plastic and kind of glue them together. There is no seam in these bubble helmets. You've handled one, I know, because our lovely mutual friend who's no longer with us, Al Warden, I know he had a bubble helmet, which there's a nice picture of you and Al Warden. Al Warden was the command module pilot of Apollo 15, who, Ryan, I know you knew well. And he had a bubble helmet. There's a nice picture of you holding the bubble helmet with Al, I think. I saw it on your Instagram feed and you're looking at it intently. You're not looking at Al or your family. You're like, how the hell does this work? Oh, yeah, yeah. So Al, apparently he knew this guy who created this technique. <laughs> he did. I asked him about it as well. He's like, yeah, it's in Connecticut. This company, Airlock, I think it was based in Connecticut. And he was telling me all about it. But So when they made these helmets, because they were so difficult to make, I think maybe like only one in 10 of them were able to pass inspection. So the guy who would form these helmets had tons of extra ones laying around that had minor imperfections. And Al said that he went and visited this guy and he kept all of the reject bubbles on the roof of whatever you know, facility he was doing. And he said, Al, do you want some of these bubbles? I got tons of them. And I guess Al was kind of a collector of things and he just took a few that have been sitting on his shelf for years. And he eventually sent one to me to convert into a bubble helmet display, you know, with the ring on the bottom and the pad in the back. So he sent that to me. And in the process, I was able to take a mold of it. But he had several of them, I think. That's the ultimate knickknack, isn't it? To have a real space helmet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you want that in your house, definitely. I do know some people that have actual full bubble helmets in their collections. And one of them, it's funny, it must have been owned by somebody that just thought it was a piece of junk because they painted it white and they cut a hole in the front and they painted an American flag on the side. So it looks like an astronaut helmet costume for a kid. So they took a real Apollo bubble and did that, which I think is funny because it was, I guess, garbage back then. <laughs> Crikey. Just to be clear, actually, you know, this stuff... This is expensive stuff. Like a, a spacesuit, I don't know how much an Apollo space, it's value, it doesn't have any value. These are government owned property, but you know, millions and millions of dollars were spent developing these suits over years. They're all owned by, I don't know, well, the 
all the Apollo suits that flew are all in the Smithsonian now, but they're incredibly valuable. So if you have one of those lying around, I have a couple of Russian suits, which are probably less priceless. But Yeah, well, they just made a lot more of each. They didn't have as many different designs as we've had. They have the Sokol suit. And I would imagine finding one of those original SK-1 suits like Gagarin wore. That would be very expensive. Yeah, the orange one. I have a Sokol suit. I have a real Sokol suit, which is kind of fun which I get out sometimes just to frighten the neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the polycarbonate bubble helmet. And as you went in your kind of artistic journey, what other kind of sort of technology is sort of there in those moon suits that, that we wore? The arms, which are kind of convolutes and the arms that lets the astronaut sort of bend the arms. And there's lots of metal cabling. And it's an amazing bit of kit. It's not just a kind of a suit. It feels much more than just an article of clothing. Yeah, so the Apollo suits, all of the joints had rubber convolutes, and it's, it's basically like a rubber accordion-looking thing. Like a drinking straw bendy bit. Yeah, and that's how they had mobility in those original suits. Now, the problem with a convolute is that if you pressurize it, it like an accordion, it would expand. So you need uh, something like a steel cable to keep that accordion contracted, and so you're only bending it in two directions. And when you bend it, it maintains a constant volume. So another principle of pressure suit design is that whenever you're moving, you want to maintain constant volume in the suit so you're not working against the pressure. So once the suit's under pressure, if you can imagine if you had your hand in something that was as hard as like a basketball, you wouldn't be able to bend very much. But if you can create a way of bending the suit and you aren't changing the volume, you're just kind of shifting it around you can get movement that way. So the Apollo suit has all of these convolutes in the knees and the shoulders, and they don't make suits like that anymore. So the modern EMU that kind of looks similar to Apollo, but inside it's very different. This is the one that they wear on the space station, the EVAs on the space station. Yeah, it does look similar, but what's the sort of technology difference? Well, after Apollo, I don't know if you've ever met Bill Airy at ILC Dover. Bill Airy, ILC, yeah. And he's a big fan of the space program, but his main work was designing the EMU suit. And he said that after Apollo, when they were designing the new suit, NASA had three sort of requirements for this new suit. One of them was no pressure sealing zippers. The original Apollo suit had a zipper in the back, pressure sealing zipper, kind of like what you would use on a scuba dry suit. So the zipper holds together two strips of rubber, and that's what holds the pressure in the suit. They didn't want any pressure sealing zippers because when they would get moon dust inside these zippers, they wouldn't seal as well. Another requirement was they didn't want any steel cables on the suits because these things rub against the suit. And Apollo suits only had to work for a few EVAs over a course of several days. But for the new EMUs, they wanted to reuse them for years. And if you had those steel cables rubbing against, you know, various parts of the suit, they would very quickly deteriorate. And they also wanted no convolutes because those rubber convolutes also break down after a while. All, all rubber products break down very quickly. So the solutions for the EMU, they have a disconnect at the waist. It's not a zipper. So you put on, it's like a pair of trousers on the bottom and then an upper hard torso and they connect via a ring, sort of like what's on the neck. And the steel cables on the EMU, they're all sort of fabric. I, I don't know if they're Kevlar or something, but all the restraints are done with that. 
and the bladder itself is not just neoprene rubber anymore. It's like a urethane coated nylon fabric. It's much stronger. Yeah. So much of like the sort of history of the spacesuit is this reliance on new materials. I mean, you think about the developing suits in the 60s, suddenly you had all these companies like DuPont who were developing materials like neoprene and well, I suppose natural rubber as well, but sort of Kevlar and all these kind of new materials coming along, which make these possible. Yeah, they do look some EMU suits. I mean, those are the same suits that they were using on the shuttle, weren't they? I mean, actually the same suits they've been using for years and years now. Yeah, I mean, they've made some upgrades to it over the years, but it's basically the same suit. Like the gloves look a lot different, you know, as they learn more and, and they can refine their techniques a little bit. The first EMU gloves look kind of like Apollo gloves. They have those blue fingertips. The modern ones are different. I heard an interesting story. Actually, I was talking about the Russian suit, the Sokol suit. Mm -hmm. The Sokol glove on the Russian suit is exactly the same as the Apollo inner glove. And that was because it may be an apocryphal story. I think the Apollo astronauts were on tour in Russia and someone nicked one of their gloves and ended up in the Zvezda Russian factory. And then they just nicked the design. But I don't know whether that's true. I've heard that too. Oh, have you? Okay, good. I heard that story too. They're very similar. They're not exactly the same, but they do look like, the glove does look like a copy of that early Apollo glove. I don't know if that's if they actually had a version or, or what. A bit of industrial espionage. I want to talk about you like i know why i got interested in spacesuits i want to know why you got interested in spacesuits you know it's one of those things so i saw apollo 13 i was 14 years old and i grew up in the 80s and i was very familiar with the shuttle and it was somewhat interesting to me you know i went to the kennedy space center as a kid and i was into the shuttle but i was born after apollo and i didn't know anything about that program or i'd seen pictures of a saturn 5 but I, I didn't realize like people were inside there i didn't i didn't know the the suits that they wore i'd seen the buzz aldrin photo on the moon i didn't realize that that gold visor thing went over a you know a polycarbonate bubble and so when i saw apollo 13 you know in that suiting up scene i just immediately wanted one of those suits so I just spent weeks making a replica of it. I don't know what it is. My life kind of went on this very long path. I ended up going to school for biology and then decided I wanted to go to film school and then, you know, did a lot of prop and costume work in film school. And that's kind of when I decided I, I wanted to make a new replica of the Apollo suit, just using all of the techniques I had acquired. And making that suit is probably the suit you own. I just got really into it. I just think those suits are so cool. And it's not something that I can really explain exactly. If you ask an artist why they like a particular subject, I don't know if they could tell you specifically, but I do think it's just an artistry thing. The suits really excite me. <laughs> yeah, and also the suit is for me, or for anyone, for a kid, for example, kids love dressing up, kids love putting on spacesuit. You know, the spacesuit is this, this kind of garment that the astronaut, this special person wears, and they kind of ascend. It almost has a kind of religious sort of element to it you know there's something about touching the robes of the astronaut there's something just sort of special about it. sort of sums up excitement and adventure and exploration and all these wonderful things when i was a kid there was a jodrell bank telescope which is a big radio telescope in england apollo was still going on so i remember being about five or six and they had one of the apollo suits on display there and i remember looking at that suit 
it was like a kind of a human, you know, it's a human shaped object that a human wears. And I remember being absolutely fascinated by it. I remember thinking to myself, I like, I've been to sort of old houses where they've got suits of armor by the stairs. I'm like, when I'm a grown up, I'm going to have a space suit at the foot of my stairs because that would be badass. <laughs> and that's it's kind of stayed with me that. And ever since that, I've always been really like you, kind of interested in the sort of history and, and the social history as well, like how they were made. I always think, though, if you really want to understand how something is made, if you really want to understand the origins of something like a space, you have to make it yourself. And I think you are the ultimate example of someone who's done that, who's like, I want to understand how this thing works. I want to understand where it's come from. And you've kind of dedicated your life to doing it. And it's so impressive what you do. I mean, it, you know, I talk about you to all kinds of people. I'm like, God, you've got to look at this guy. I mean, it's just another level of just beautiful work. So I just want to say a huge thank you for sharing some of your stories and your time as well. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I agree. If you want to know something very much in detail then make a copy of it, it'll force you to look into everything. Okay, that's all for today. Thank you very much for listening. Now, if you have an invention that you would like to know the story behind, let me know. You can find me on Twitter. We've got episodes coming up on tanks and even the ear trumpets. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now, if any of that sounds up your street, subscribe or follow wherever you are listening now. I'll be back every Wednesday and Sunday with brand new episodes. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.